Certainly Christmas is a time of surprises, isn't it? It's one of the things that uh, we enjoy so much about Christmas, surprises. It reminds me of a lady who was preparing, a Christmas, was preparing Christmas cookies. She heard a knock on the door. She went to the door, and there she found a man who was dressed very poorly, and obviously he was looking for some Christmas odd jobs. He asked her if there was anything that he could do. And she says, can you paint? Yes, he said, I'm a rather good painter. Well, she said, there are two gallons of green paint and a brush, and there's a porch out back that needs to be painted. Please do a good job, and I'll pay you whatever the job is worth. He said, fine, I'll do it quickly. She went back to the cookie baking and was having fun. Not too much longer, she had another knock on the door, and she went to the door, and there was the man, and you could see he had paint on him, green paint all over him, and, and she went, and, and as she said, looked at him, he had a smile of great satisfaction on his face. And she said, did you finish the job? And he said, yes, I did. Did you do a good job? And he says, oh, yes. But, lady, there's one thing I want to point out to you. That's not a Porsche back there. That's a Mercedes. Quite a surprise, to be sure. But if you want to talk about surprises, consider the story of an elderly man in Phoenix. Just before Christmas, he calls his son in New York City. Speaking with passion, the old man says, Son, I hate to ruin your day, but I want to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. Forty-five years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about? The son says. We can't stand the sight of each other any longer, the, man, the old man says. We're sick of each other, and I'm sick of even talking about this, so go call your sister in Chicago and you tell her. Frantic, the son calls his sister, and he, she explodes on the phone. They're not getting divorced, she shouts. I'll take care of this. She calls Phoenix immediately and screams at her father. You are not getting divorced. Don't do a single thing till I get there. I'm calling my brother back, and we'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. The old man hangs up the phone, goes into the other room with a sweet smile on his face. He says, honey, guess what? The kids are coming for Christmas. <laughs> and they're paying their own fares this time. Isn't that sweet of them? Well, I hope none of you have those kind of surprises this Christmas. From the very beginning, that first Christmas, Christmas has been filled with surprises. Think about it. After a hundred years of anticipation, not a hundred, after hundreds of years of waiting for the Christ to be born, finally a son is born. Today, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be reading that familiar passage from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we see the birth of Jesus through Luke's eyes. And if you would, follow along with me in your Bibles, if you brought your Bibles or in your pew Bibles or on the screen. Listen now for the word of the Lord in this familiar passage. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea in Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. A son is born at just the right time in history. For centuries, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the Jewish people had been waiting for the birth of their Messiah, the one who would deliver them from the foreign rule and set up a glorious new kingdom of God. Little did they know that the night mentioned in Luke 2, when Jesus was born, was the grand culmination of God's plan for them and his activity in their lives and history. You've heard me say many times that the Greek has two words for time. One is chronos, which means the orderly measurement of time. I have on here a chronometer, better known as a watch. and We also measure time by clocks. There's a digital one back there that I'm watching very closely. And then there's another kind of time, and that time is kairos. And kairos is time of fulfillment, God's special time, kingdom standard time. After being ruled and in some cases exiled by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, now Israel is being controlled by the Romans. Now the Romans, who could be ruthless and anything but God-fearing, were being used by God to accomplish his purpose for the world. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey writes that the Roman emperor whom we just read about, who was there at the time of Jesus, Augustus, brought great hope to the whole Roman Empire. Here's what he says. More than any other ruler, Augustus raised the expectations of what a leader could accomplish and what society could achieve. It was Augustus, in fact, who borrowed the Greek word for gospel or good news and applied it as a label for the new world order represented by his reign. During that kairos moment in time in the Roman Empire, there was what we would call Pax Romana, which meant Roman peace. With so much of the world under the rule of the Romans, there was a relative kind of peace that swept over the world at that time. The Roman leaders, while they allowed freedom of self-rule wherever possible, uh, allowed then for a peace to be transmitted around the then known world. To go a step further in it being the right time, there was a common language spoken throughout the whole Roman Empire. Even though there were particular languages in each area, most of the people had to speak either Greek and Latin, which was the common language. Communication was possible in a way unknown previously in history. Also, there were the Roman roads. Think about it. 
Probably no time in history had there been roads that were better than those during the Romans, much like our interstate highway system has opened up all kinds of opportunities for transportation, travel, commerce, and for them it was communication too. It was greater than any time that had previously been experienced. You see how it was just the right time. Jesus was born in Kairos time. The good news of his coming could spread more quickly than any other time in history. God's timing is exquisite. We find that in another way here. Luke makes certain that we understand that there was a Roman census taking place. Now, we take a census every 10 years here in the United States. The Romans took one every 14 years. It had a dual purpose. One was to find out how many people they had, to be sure, but the other was to, had to do with the, the military draft. Now, in Palestine, a Jew could not serve in the Roman military, so it was strictly used there for the purpose of determining the tax that would be, that would be given to the people. To go a step further, did you realize that the census called for people to come go to the headquarters of their particular ancestors or tribes? For Joseph, of course, as I mentioned to the children, that meant going back to Bethlehem to be counted. Did you know that the Old Testament prophet Micah wrote these words centuries before Jesus? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, Micah 5.2. Do you get just a glimpse of how at just the right time in history the son is born? A son is born in the most scandalous fashion here too, which must have been a surprise to so many. The scandal, of course, is centered around Mary and Joseph's relationship. It's important to understand the threefold relationship or, or, or what marriage was all about in those days. The first came at the time of engagement. Engagement meant that uh, a, a couple of families would decide, oh, these kids look like they would be good for each other, and so there would be an arranged marriage. And that often, like it happens in many other parts of the world today, would take place many years before the children would enter into the next phase. While taken seriously, engagements could be broken. The second phase was, had a lot more commitment to it. It was the betrothal stage, and it lasted for a year. Within the context of commitment, the couple set up housekeeping together, but without becoming intimate. Unfaithfulness in this phase was considered every bit as bad as adultery and could be punished by death. Divorce was the only way to break the betrothal covenant. And then the final phase was the wedding of the bride and the groom. And that was a glorious time when the whole community would gather together and they would feel like royalty for the bride and the groom would feel like royalty for a whole week. And it wasn't until this time, that the, this final phase, that the couple was sexually intimate. As we know by both Luke and Matthew's accounts, Mary and Joseph were in the second or betrothal phase. If they had been in the engagement phase, they most certainly would have broken up and gone their different ways. If they had been in the third phase, the wedding phase, Mary would have not been a virgin. 
We can only imagine the scandal in the sight or the eyes of the people there in Nazareth. Mary must have been an outcast. And maybe that was a great motivator for her to go with Joseph instead of stay there uh, when Joseph had to go to, to register for the census. Uh, she wanted to go with him, even though she was great with child and, and would have a baby at any time. Think what it would be like to, to take a journey on uh, possibly a, a horse or a donkey from, say, uh, South Bend to here when you were just about ready to give birth to a child. Now, I can't even imagine that, but some of you women maybe could. Well, well-known speaker, and, and you know, the, the whole thing was scandalous as you think about that, with all the rooms taken, even uh, the place was scandalous because they were born, as we said to the kids today, the baby was born in a stable. Certainly a king should never be born in a stable. Well-known Christian speaker and author Ravi Zacharias in his book, Questions I Would Like to Ask God, writes, I have often referenced the quote by talk show host Larry King in his response to a particular question. If you could select any person across all of history to interview, who would it be? Mr. King's answer was that he would like to interview Jesus Christ. When the questioner followed with, and what would you like to ask him? King replied, I would like to ask him if he indeed was virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Now, Ravi Zacharias then writes that when he requested permission through a common friend to quote Larry King, King sent word back saying, and tell him I wasn't being facetious. Without question, King was right. The scandalous fashion in which Jesus the Christ was born does define human history. God is the God of the impossible. And that brings us to the next point that I want to make. That son who was born has forever been changing human history, transforming human history. In Luke's gospel, the shepherds from the hills of Bethlehem are the first to receive the announcement that the son is born. On the socioeconomic ladder of that day, the shepherds were certainly on the very lowest rung. Just as his birth in a stable made a statement about God's priorities, so this birth announcement tells us that God highly values all people and not just the rich and famous. In Matthew's gospel, which was written from a Jewish perspective, even in the first chapter where they're speaking about the line of this Messiah, there are several who are not Jews, which was scandalous in many ways. And then in chapter 2, the first people to pay homage to the great King David's greater son are the magi or the wise men, people who are astrologers who come from far away, who are foreigners. There are ethnic and racial lines which are crossed, demonstrating the fact that God loves the whole world, even though Israel is his chosen people to whom he has related through the centuries. Without a doubt, the baby becomes a man and shares the kingdom of God with his world, and he continually overturns tables of propriety. 
He demonstrates what's important to God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, showing us how God feels about the world in which we make our homes today. In John 3, 4, and 5, we have a wonderful example of this. In John 3, as he speaks to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is a prominent religious and political figure of that day. And when he speaks to him, he says, you got to be born again. If he's going to experience the kingdom of God, he has to start all over. He has to be radically transformed by the Spirit. All of this earthly power and prestige counted for nothing in God's eyes. In John chapter 4, Jesus surprises the Samaritan woman at the well by even talking with her in the first place. I mean, she is completely on the other end of the spectrum from Nicodemus. I mean, they are at opposite ends. As a Samaritan, she's considered a half-breed by the Jews. But even the Samaritans have cast her out because she has been married five times and is living with another man. While not condoning her sinfulness, Jesus treats her with dignity and respect, showing her that she can experience the living water which can quench her spiritual thirst for something more in life. Jesus gives her a new life which she in turn naturally shares with people all around her. In John chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man who has been an invalid for 38 years, and he feels sorry for himself. He's in the midst of a pity party. But even though it's the Sabbath, Jesus heals the man, giving him a new lease on life. In so doing, Jesus infuriates the religious leaders of the day, concerned more about their traditions than they are about people. Yes, this son who was born that day has forever changed history, even though he only preached, taught, and healed for three short years. He was horribly misunderstood by the misguided, paranoid religious leaders, causing them to execute him like a vicious criminal. But this son born, raised triumphantly from death to everlasting life, proving once and for all that he is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of lords. He is the one who was prophesied by men of old. In the more than 2,000 years since this son was born, Jesus has continued to transform the lives of people who would follow him as Savior and Lord. He's brought forgiveness, something that no one else could do, when we confess our sins and repent. He has brought peace and joy and meaning like no other person who has walked in the dust of this earth. He has brought hope, hope in the midst of temptations and trials and heartaches, hope that there's a new day coming and it's just around the bend. While the world in which the son was born more than 2,000 years ago is far removed from our world, that's to be sure. Tradition is so much different today. But think about that peaceful setting that we looked at there in Bethlehem with the kids. Only a few days later, what happens? Herod comes in, a maniacal king, and hundreds of children 
under the age, boy babies under the age of two, are massacred. Somehow it reminds us, doesn't it, of Newtown, Connecticut, where innocent children were also ruthlessly murdered. Well, more than 20 centuries have seen stupendous advances in all kinds of ways, we still are as much in need of that son who was born at just the right time in scandalous fashion. Tim Keller, the pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York, says this, Christianity does not so much offer solutions to the problem of suffering, but rather provides the promise of a God who is completely present with us in suffering. Only Christians believe in a God who says, here I am alongside of you. I have experienced the same kind of suffering you have. I know what it's like. No other religion even begins to offer that assurance. He goes on to say, after the World Trade Center tragedy between 600 and 800 new people began attending Redeemer. The sudden influx of people presented the question, what does your God have to say or to offer in a time like this? Keller says, I preached Christianity is the only faith that tells us that God lost a child in an act of violent injustice. Christianity is the only religion that tells you, therefore, that God suffered as you suffer. Why would God be willing to come to our earth in the first place and all of the pain and suffering and be a baby born in a stable? Why would he be willing to suffer even to the point of death on the most cruel, barbaric means of execution devised up until that day? Well, it all boils down to love. Listen to these words from San Antonio pastor and author Max Lucado from his book, Gentle Thunder. One of the sweetest reasons God saved you is because he's fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you're the best thing to come down the pike in a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your picture, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart. And the Christmas gift he sent to you in Bethlehem? Face it, friend, he's crazy about you. In short, the good news this season and every season is you matter to God. The question that we have to ask is, does God matter to us? This awesome and gracious God wants to matter to you. He wants to have a personal relationship with each one of us. There's not a better time than today, two days before Christmas, for the Son to be born anew in you. That can happen as you simply by prayer confess your sins and then by faith unwrap the greatest gift ever given as you invite Jesus to be a part of your life. From the very beginning, this is what God had in mind 
when he sent Jesus to be that son born here on this good planet Earth. Maybe to go a step further, this morning can be a time when you can come home for Christmas. Maybe in all kinds of ways, for all kinds of reasons, some of them would seem good and some of them maybe don't seem as good anymore. You've stepped away from that relationship with God. Again, through prayer, right here today, you can come home. If you've been wandering off on your own, doing your own thing, he stands ready to welcome you home with open arms. And to go a step further, maybe today as you consider all that God has done, coming to our earth, living amongst us, you say, God, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you want me to give you? What do you want me to commit to you? What do you want me to pass on to others as I share your gracious love? I would challenge you as you open gifts to think about what God is calling you to be and do in your families, what God is calling you to be and do in the world where you live. In the next few months, by God's grace, there are going to be some opportunities opening up that go along with Vision 2020. They'll give us a chance to do hands-on ministry, to reach out in all kinds of ways. Are you willing to ask the question and mean it, God, how do you want to use me? This week I read an interesting fact in the paper. As many of you know, I was a pastor for 13 and a half years at the Southport Presbyterian Church down on the south side. One of the things that happened about three or four years ago was that we found that there was a large population of Burmese refugees in our community. We start reaching out to them and doing things like English as a second language. We help them with furniture. We help them in all kinds of ways. And they worshiped in one of our one of our buildings. It went so well that that relationship grew as they grew in numbers, uh, and there's a huge number of them now. As I was reading the paper this week and reading about what had happened in the Richmond Hill explosion, one of the things that I noticed just in small print in one place was that the Burmese refugees had taken up an offering for the Richmond Hill Relief Fund through the Southport Presbyterian Church, and they had given $10,000. An amazing thing for people who are really on, uh, on just basic subsistence in many ways. They were passing it on. God calls us in our own ways to do the same thing. Please join me in prayer. God, we're grateful for the privilege of looking at your word together today. We're grateful for the surprises of Christmas. Grateful that Jesus came at just the right time to be born here on this good planet Earth. Even grateful that he was born in scandalous fashion. And grateful that he continues to transform our lives today if we will let him. God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, not just in these moments, but in the moments to come. As we celebrate Christmas. Continue to help us to look for ways that we can show you that you matter to us. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.